I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast. A podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. Darren Nigel Hinch, uh, welcome to That's Life again. What's your middle name? Well, I, I don't really have one. Uh, I oh, was just... Christened. You're lucky. <laughs> you know why? Yeah. My middle name spells leg in backwards. And <laughs> right. um, I, I tell people, just as a joke, that uh, my middle name is Tiberius, because I know he was a pretty bad Roman emperor. Uh, yep. And uh, I know William McMahon... Uh, was called uh, Tiberius on the Telephone by That was from Gough the Tiberius on the Telephone, that's right. And there's a book written uh, recently about uh, Tiberius. Some guy wrote a book about William McMahon because he was the only Prime Minister that there had not been a uh, a biography written about. Well, you know why? Because he he tried to write his own and it got to about 700,000 words. (laughs) I mean, Billy McMahon couldn't stop talking if you, if you shot him. You know? <laughs> well, he's often regarded, or he was then, I don't, he probably had worse since, but one of the, well, the worst Prime Minister in uh, Australia's history. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Billy Biggie, as they used to call him. Yeah, they, they, well, they, they said he looked like a, vo- a Volkswagen. Vo- that was my expression. Open. He looked like a Volkswagen with the doors open, is what I said once <laughs> on radio. Uh, my, my best, Bill, we're off on a tangent here now, which I hadn't planned, but. Um, my best Milligan Mann story was that um, I was based in New York at the time when he was Prime Minister. And he and uh, Sonia came through New York on the way to Washington to, um, to see uh, President Nixon. And we were at a, a, a cocktail party to, to welcome him, put on by the consulate uh, at a hotel in, in New York. And uh, I'm standing talking to Sonia. Um, who was very pretty, I must admit, and and she's standing very glorious standing long legs, and she yeah, well, she was standing, she was standing off. beside her by the um, a hotel, a very low hotel light that shone through her, her dress on her legs. I must admit. Anyway, Billy came up to her. The prime minister Australian says, "Quick, we've got to go. We're going to dinner," and she she brushed him off and said, "Excuse me, I'm talking," <laughs> and brushed him away. And I thought, "Wow!" And then, of course, we saw the famous picture of of her showing her legs in that White House dress that she wore uh, at, with Nixon at, at a reception. And I was there, and uh, i tell you a funny story. We, with the journal, we, weren't in the, we weren't in the dining room, I'll grant that. We were in a little press room, and we, but we heard, we had an audio. And just before Nixon got up to introduce Billy, you know, our de- his, the United States' dearest and closest personal friends and, and allies and ANZUS and all that, he leans across an open mic, which we heard, and says, excuse me, excuse me, do you pronounce your name McMahon or McMahon? <laughs> <laughs> this is the President of the United States, two seconds before he, <laughs> before he introduces. You know, it, was, it was like Jimmy Carter once uh, uh, introduced Malcolm Fraser and said, now uh, uh, this dear friend of, uh, of America, the Australian Prime Minister, John Fraser. <laughs> because John Mal- Malcolm Fraser's first name was John. He was John Ma- Malcolm Fraser. And he just would have been briefed on, or someone sort of looked yeah. it up and saw that. Mm. And, and it's it's like, but people don't remember. Um, what was, okay, here's a good trivial pursuit question. What was Gough Whitlam's first name? Edward. You got it, yeah. 
because what I remember it always is I was in New York when Goff was visiting and I heard a radio station say, and visiting Australia is the um, is the, the leader of Australia, Mr. Ego Whitlam. <laughs> e. Well, Goff he was, Whitlam. He was probably <laughs> right. Actually. And I thought, that's, that's pretty true. But yeah, Mr. Ego Whitlam. So there you go. <laughs> well, just quickly on, on Billy McMahon and his wife, Sonia, she was much taller than him. She was oh, Am- yeah. Amazonian compared to, uh, to him. And uh, he had this, uh, obviously had some uh, vocal problems or something because he had this high-pitched, squeaky little voice that... Um, mm. Uh, wait, quavered a little bit uh, yeah. when he got a bit excited, um, and and of course the, in that election in 1972, you had Gough Whitlam who was a tall, imposing, brilliant speaker. Yeah. So uh, they were total opposites. And without going into detail, and Billy's sexuality was always under question as well, uh, publicly yeah. as well. Yeah. But but I tell you. When Sonia McMahon went to New York and Washington, she, she owned those towns. I tell you, she, she looked incredibly sexy. And, uh, and that, that dress, was I think, has gone to some museum, I would imagine, by now. Uh, it was the talk of the town in, in New York and Washington. But when, when, when Nixon couldn't even remember how to pronounce his name, I thought, oh, God, this is rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> now, who would have thunk that you had a green thumb? Derek? Nobody. No, listen, this is a good topic. Let's get on to it because this may explain why gardening shows, gardening segments on weekend radio programs like Darren James's, why they're so successful. People, and, and, and lockdown has, I guess, exacerbated this because people are now spending more time in their gardens, growing more food at home, and I'm lucky or unlucky to not live in a house with a big garden, but I have a, a beautiful balcony. And I grow a lot of stuff on there. The balcony's not as big as it appears to be on Facebook. But I've got flowers and roses and jasmine. And I'm now growing celery and leeks and garlic. Uh, and and I'm, it's, it's a very enjoyable thing. Well, first of all, there's nothing better than eating something that you have grown yourself. Yes. Um, I have a, a couple of fruit trees here. I've got a particular peach tree, well, two of them, one at the front, one at the back. The one at the back produces peaches early in the season. So early in December, I get get peaches. And then the other one in January. Darren, the, the peaches, they're, they're, you know, you buy a peach from a supermarket and if they've been in the fridge or something to be preserved, they, they taste uh, papery, cardboardish. These ones well, are they so may have been Well, they may have been in refrigeration in Tasmania for five months, you know. <laughs> and that's, the, that's the scary thing. So, so what's brought this on, you know, growing well, all this I've, stuff? I've always had plants, indoor plants. I don't now. I have, like, I have one miniature indoor plant. Everything else is outside on the balcony. And I love it. I've got a lemon tree. I've got two lemons this season of it, which is good, and lots of blossoms still coming. Um, I'm learning. Any time when I put up on Facebook a picture of, of, of one of my plants, like I've got a, I, I bought a, um, a Japanese maple tree when Clive James said he was dying and he wanted to stay alive until his tree bloomed. And so I went to Bunnings and bought a Japanese maple and today it's blooming like you wouldn't believe it's mm. back. You know, mm. I've had that for some years. Um, I've got a lemon tree. I've got a lot of greenery. I've got some jasmine growing on, on a trellis. Um, 
uh, and people, whenever I post a picture on Facebook, people say, oh, they love it. And then they say, when are you doing your own gardening show? And I say, not going to happen. I do it purely for self-enjoyment and fun. I, I just love to watch it. I love to watch. I planted, I, I got some Woolworths, some Woolies celery. I chop the celery up because I make celery juice for breakfast with um, coconut water. But I, uh, I, I just plant the roots and they're growing like crazy. And so I've got celery growing, you know, and it's just it's just fun. I, I have no interest in I have no interest in watching a gardening segment. I don't listen. People say do this, do that, but I, I have listened to some people. I'll tell you some couple of tips. I now often um, after I've peeled a banana, I put the skin in a bowl in a bowl of water overnight, and then put the water full of potassium and the skins onto my garden. I also now put. And when I chop off celery, excess celery um, leaves or, or whatever, I put them on the garden. And if I, when I cook eggs, which is often, I crunch the shells and put them on the garden. So I'm learning. It's like a mini compost. Well, you're becoming a, a, a greenie, Darren. Well, I'm I'm, a veg I'm I'm not a vegetarian, Tony. I'm almost. I'm, I call myself a vegetarian. Right, uh, you eat vegetables and fish. Is that what I eat? Say? Vegetables, occasionally chicken and fish. I don't eat red meat. Um, I like people who call themselves pescatarians who eat vegetables and fish. Um, there's a there's a there's, there's a new thing called the re reducitarium. Have you heard of this? No. A reducitarium is a person who's trying to cut down on the amount of red meat that they eat. Right. So they call reducer. Reduce, uh, reduce. I mean, my partner Linda, uh, Linda Stoner, who runs Animal Liberation in Sydney, um, she's been a vegan for years and years and years. And and I know, and my ex-wife Chanel was a vegetarian. And I, I know the times when, way way back, when if you're a vegetarian, you went to a restaurant, they'd give you a, a, a bowl of boiled boiled spinach and a, and a carrot, you know. But that's changing. I mean, twelve percent of Australians are now vegetarian. Sixteen percent of Brazilians. Which is the biggest meat export in the world? Sixteen percent of Brazilians are now vegetarian. Mm, mm. Well, yeah, I don't think I could ever be a vegetarian. Well, okay, the, the the fake meat business, call that the the plant meat business, and, and McDonald's now have a thing called McPlant. The fake meat business is huge. You're getting people from Bill Gates to the Smorgan family investing millions of dollars into fake meat. You know, plant-based meat. Um, I'd never dreamed that Hungry Jacks or McDonald's would feature dishes of meat that aren't real meat. Well, I must say, when, when I went to Coles, I've got one of those little um, miniature Coles sort of stores uh, oh, yeah. uh, that's pop popping up around the place. And uh, I went in there, um, oh, about six months ago, <laughs> and I saw this hamburger that wasn't meat hamburger, and I thought, oh, I'll give this a try. I must say, I, I liked it. You know, mm. it tasted... Good. It'll, it'll surprise you because when I want to go to spend Christmas with Linda, um, I eat vegan food for 10 days and I have beetroot burgers and goodness knows what. My contribution is to make the best roast potatoes you can ever get in your life. You know? um, well, but, how, do, how do you make those? Ah, there's a secret. <laughs> with This is the old Hinch Diet book. With roast potatoes, first you boil them. Yes. Right? Then you... Then you you bash them around, you empty the wall, you bash them around the pan to create some edges. 
right? Don't they fall you, apart when you boil no, them? No, no, no. And then when you, you don't boil them too much, you don't make them crumbly. Then you, you bash them around the pan a bit. Then when you put them in the oven to bake them, those edges, which you can also add to with a fork, they improve the crispiness of your baked potatoes. And if you like, sometimes, as I've done once or twice, you can put some French onion soup powder on your baked potatoes and before you put it in the oven, and that tastes beautiful. Well, I've seen, uh, who's the guy, the, the young English cook, um, blonde-headed guy, I've forgotten his name now. Um, uh, the one who swears all the time, Jamie Oliver. No, J- Jamie Oliver, yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. He's got this recipe where, that, where he puts duck fat on the um, on the potatoes. Oh, a lot of people, that, well, when I was married to Chanel, she used to have to ask, when she'd order some French fries, she'd say, what oil are they cooked in? And often, usually they're cooked in duck fat. Well, if you're a vegetarian, you don't eat French fries cooked in duck fat. Yeah, but apparently it makes them, uh, you know. It does. Oh, it, just, um, it did make them taste very, very good. I'm not, I'm not, 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 not eating that at all. You know? Now, when, when you, you, you've got a balcony now and you're growing stuff, yes. when, when you had the farm uh, up around Mount Macedon, we, you had some uh, vineyard there, didn't you? Some, yes, uh, I did. Yeah. Uh, how, many, um, how many acres of uh, vines did you have? Because uh, you produced oh, your yeah, own I, wine I as well. Yeah, we had Macedon Ridge wine, we had, uh, we had sheep, we had cattle. I remember my farm manager at one stage, he said our yearlings got the top price at the Dalesford or the, the, kind, no, the Kyneton markets, right? He said, he phoned me, I was at 3AW, he said, we got the top price of the yearlings at the Kyneton market. I said, so we bloody well should. You feed them with a knife and fork. <laughs> yeah. Well, is it, is it because they they knew that it, there was they they were hinch cows or <laughs> no no they were just they were just well well bred well bred calves. You know. uh, uh, do you have I, any wine left over? You know, some. I've bottles got about left four over. bottles left over, which I'll never drink because it's too old now. You know, I've got a I've got a couple of bottles of champagne, a bottle of Pinot Noir, and a bottle of Sav Blanc, but. Uh, it's uh, that was. It's, I opened a bottle about a year ago, and uh, it's it's gone. It's too old. But so I'm just saving them now as souvenirs. So. Yeah. Hey, can I tell you something? Being being um, this is off the topic of of um, being a green thumb. Um, the Melbourne Football Club, okay, because they're in the grand final, which is magic, right? There was a a tweet went out recently, saying that the hot word in Perth. I'm paraphrasing. The hot word in Perth is that the human headline is going to quarantine in Perth so he can present the cup to Melbourne when the Demons win the grand final. And it, it was bullshit. Absolute rubbish. I mean, I, I was the number two ticket holder for, for Melbourne. That is true. And I loved the club. I started a thing called the Tridents. And our first, that was the showbiz wing of the club to try and raise money. And our first guest singing was a woman, a young unknown woman called Kylie Minogue. Um, but I had a fight with the board, I had a fight with the board in 2004, left the club and have never been back, have not been asked to present the cup, would not anyway, because you don't coattail success, you don't coattail glory. I've been gone from Melbourne for 20 years. And when you don't support a club, Jesus, it gives you a lot more hours in your weekend. <laughs> Well, look, I remember those days when you were uh, involved in the Melbourne Football Club because um, some people from the Cop Shop TV program were also... Uh, you, you were in the paper all the time. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, we had, we had a lot of people involved. And Peter Sullivan and I wrote a song called It's Melbourne's Game. Uh, yeah, it's, it's our team and our name. I remember, you know, we're rising up, we're going to win that cup. I wrote the lyrics, he wrote the music. 
And the last line of, the, of our Melbourne song was me just doing a big echoed version saying, football, we invented it. <laughs> <laughs> it's Melbourne's game. It's our team and our name. We're rising up. We're going to win that cup. I remember those lines. I wrote it. It must have been 20 years ago I wrote that. But anyway, look, I wish them well. Watching them play when they demolished Geelong both times, when they came back from a 44-point deficit to win, was after the siren with Max Max winning that, kicking that goal, was extraordinary. But then the way they demolished them again was just extraordinary. You know? I remember, Darren, at a, in a previous podcast, you spoke about your first ever VFL... You know, AFL game. Mm. Uh, you were taken there by Molly Meldrum. It was True. a St Kilda game, St. and it Kilda was a pretty Essendon, rough, yeah. tough sort of game, if I remember correctly. Tough. It was. It was Ronnie Andrews from memory, uh, and, and 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 Mad Dog Muir from St Kilda. And I watched this game, my first ever VF, uh, VFL game in my life. And after I said to Molly, "How do they?" turn up for next week. And these people carried off with broken elbows and blood everywhere. And next Sunday, I, that Sunday, I picked up my local paper and the Sunday press, the Sunday Observer said, animals. And that was the Essendon referring to St Kilda. Apparently, I'd watched one of the roughest games <laughs> in VFL history. I thought it was just a normal Saturday game. And, it was, and then one day, Don Lane took me to a re-league match in, uh, in Sydney and he supported Newtown. And we walk in for lunch, and the building is half there because they'd run out of money trying to rebuild the new town headquarters. We had a meal, which wasn't good. Then we go to the football, and at half time he takes me down to the rooms of the new town jets, I think they were, and uh, this guy's sitting around at half time drinking beer and smoking cigarettes. <laughs> And I thought, this is not the sort of football that I've remembered. I, I played rugby as a kid in New Zealand, and, uh, and I thought, this is bizarre, and, and, and it was. It was but now, a... I must admit, I think rugby league is, is a great game. I really do. It, yeah. it, it, this would be controversial, but it's more physical than, than, uh, than AFL. Oh, it's a tough game, yep. Uh, the fact that they just deliberately will take grab a ball and run head five yards knowing they're going to be hit in the head by three, three hunks, you know? It's, it's just... It's, it's like watching two refrigerators, you know, come, yeah. bang, head, head on with uh, yeah. each other. It, it's amazing. I mean, I, I, I do have, have some support. I've been there. I, I do like the Melbourne Storm. I think they are brilliant. I, you know, I think they're some of the... I think Billy Slater, when this, if you don't follow rugby league, you won't be interested in this, so tune out for 30 seconds. I think Billy Slater, when he was with the Melbourne Storm was one of the greatest athletes in the world. Not footballer, athletes. He was fit. He could he could sense where the ball was going. It was like an innate, amazing thing that Billy Slater had. And I, I admire that immensely. Mm. Talking about um, people drinking beer and uh, cigarettes at halftime and whatever, uh, Kevin Bartlett used to tell the story. Because it was a different era back then in the mm. 70s and the 80s. Sports science hadn't yet sort of come onto the scene. And uh, he used to have uh, fish and chips at lunchtime and then go and play the game. Uh, you know, Dougie Walters, the cricketer, he was famous for... Uh, he'd have a cigarette in the dressing room and then go out and bat. Uh, just a totally different world. And, 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 yeah, I know. And also, most of those players, like Rex Hunt, who was a, I think was a former copper, uh, they would have a full-time job as well. 
So if they fit there, because they weren't being paid that much as footballers, they would fit their football training and their games in between their jobs. Which, which that's why sometimes current footballers, I believe, fall off fall off the planet because they've been spoiled like crazy. They've never worked in their lives. All they know is football, and they have no no personal discipline in that manner. Well, um, well very few life skills too, because they've never really needed right. yeah, them. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, mean, I think I read a story once that Gary Ablett said he'd, he'd never balance his own checkbook, and then that says something about trying to face life afterwards, you know. I mean, I just saw a story recently about Thurston, who's another a great um, rugby league player. He's now a millionaire because as soon as he signed his first contract in rugby league, his manager limited him to only $400 a week and the rest went into be investments into property and stocks. And now Thurston owns half an airline in Queensland mm. as well. So, and he's lecturing young league players, saying, "Remember, it won't go on forever, and make sure you've got somewhere to go after it ends." Yeah, well, that's what a lot—not not just in uh, sport, but in show business as well. Yes. Uh, pe- people, um, you know, they're earning amounts of money that normal people just uh, couldn't possibly imagine. Uh, but it doesn't go on forever. So, uh, you know, if you've got a good manager and people uh, to uh, to look after your needs, because managers rip people off too. Elvis Presley... I, I, know, I know the feeling well. Um, managers, managers can... Uh, I mean, I know of times when where managers get 20 25% of what you earn. Now, on, on, the, on the fair side of managers, I know of cases, friends of mine are managers, where they have struggled and worked so hard for young entertainers and have paid, been paid nothing. I mean, the entertainer's earning $5,000 a year and the, uh, the manager gets five hundred. Um, then when they become successful and they're earning $250,000 a year, they sack the manager. Um, that happens a lot. But on the other side, though, there are um, very unscrupulous and greedy managers. The joke used to be about dear old Harry Miller one of the exports from New Zealand, Harry M. Miller. The joke used to be, if you shake hands with Harry, count your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, did he not go to jail over something? Yes, he did. Over, yeah, over, he did. He, uh, he uh, got involved in a scandal and it started with C and it's contra something. It was a, a, a ticketing system. Yes. And he went, he went to jail over it because he was, he was a, I mean, Harry was a con, you know, and... Uh, he stole money and he conned people, Harry conned people. Uh, uh, he's a very, I knew Harry very well and he was very um, persuasive and very pleasant to chat to, but he was a crook. Well, he was in for Harry, I guess, is uh, the way to put it. <laughs> now, Darren, back to the Melbourne Football Club. Yes. Um, you, you obviously, when you came to Melbourne, you needed to have a team because that's what everybody has. Uh, how did you come to choose the Melbourne Football Club as being your team? Well, I was going to choose St Kilda because I wanted the underdog, okay? Well, they've been a true underdog for a very long time. Yeah, at that stage. But um, as always in my life, romance takes over. And I fancied a woman called Annette Allison who was the newsreader on Channel O, which became Channel 10. And her managers wouldn't let her see me because they, they didn't want us to get together. We managed to get over that in the end. 
And on our first date, Annette took me to a Melbourne football game. And I went home a year later. <laughs> <laughs> and on, on, after that game, we dropped into 3AW to see Bruce Mansfield doing a Saturday night show. And he was also reading news with Annette on Channel O. Right? And we walk in together and Bruce was gobsmacked. You know, here's Darren Hinch and Alan Allison together at his, on his program because I think it was his birthday. And he said, what are you doing here? And we just shrugged. And, that, and then that's how Annette and I got together. She became the number two ticket holder woman. No, the number one female ticket holder of Melbourne. I became number two and I launched the Tridents to try and get showbiz support and get some more glamour for them. And then we launched, as I said, the, the Melbourne song with Peter Sullivan and... Uh, and I, st I was with the club for a long time, and I, I loved it. You know, I loved being involved. And, and, uh, well, you, you would go to all of the, the big events, oh, uh, yeah. the, the evenings that they would have, and footy clubs have a lot of those sort of social occasions, uh, and the games as well. So in, in a winter, you know, in a season, uh, football, if you're really involved to, to that extent, absolutely dominates your oh, it life. It was your life. It was your life. I mean, I remember saying to Jackie once, after when I quit which I felt good about because i got a lot more to do when you don't support a football club. Um, I'd go to matches and I'd be sitting there and people would say to me, who's going to win the next election, you know? And, uh, and I'm, all I want to do is watch football. And they'd say, what do you think about so-and-so? And I'd get home with a pocket full of business cards and beer coasters and suggestions and I thought, this is not, this is not making my weekends work, you know? You become so obsessed with with football, and a lot of people are. Uh, and now, um, I watch the games. I mean, I, I watch them win, win, win in, in the lead up to the grand final. I, I watch, but I watch all sport. I watch those two teenagers fight out the uh, U.S. Open in tennis, which is a a wonderful afternoon of sport. So, I'm, I'm totally pro sport. I love it. Well, that young girl, 18-year-old, mm. a R Romanian... Um, English girl. Do uh, you know what? She, she was a hundred to one chance. She was a qualifier. Yeah, she wasn't she even wasn't in the really. top 150, I think. She was no, no, number she 156. No. no, she wasn't. She was a qualifier who goes on to win the US Open. That girl's... You watch her, you read her name for the next... 20 years. I mean, she can still be playing at 38. She picked up a, she's 18 years old. She picked up a paycheck of more than $2 million today. Um, and, and, and the girl she defeated, defeated the Canadian one, she's also a teenager. And they will both be, you'll see them, they are the new Williams sisters. You'll see them up there fighting it out week after week, year after year. It is great for tennis, I tell you. Emma Raducanu, I, I think her is name. It? She played at Wimbledon. I read something where, uh, what's his name, uh, the, the English journo who likes to uh, mouth off a little bit. Um, Piers Morgan. Piers Morgan, yeah, yeah, had a go at her at Wimbledon because she she had some sort of uh, anxiety attack. Uh, you know, a young girl playing in a big, big tournament and she just didn't cope with it and uh, she, she retired or, or she... she, she quit, quit um, the, the, the match she was in when she was losing. And he had a go at her saying she needs to be tougher and all that sort of stuff. 
Uh, it's fine when you're a... Here, here, this is a man who walked off the set when he couldn't stand <laughs> criticism. <laughs> yeah, it's fine when you're in the stands. You don't have to do it yourself. Mm. Uh, you can say all sorts of things. But to Emma Raducanu, she's a gorgeous-looking uh, lady too, if I'm allowed to say well, that. Well, the, okay, the thing is, if you, I'll go back to tennis. I'll leave that alone. Um, and she is gorgeous. But her second serve is almost as strong as her first serve. And that's what knocks people out. I mean, that usually your second serve is almost a lob. I mean, I, I used to play tennis, I don't need more, but your second serve is almost a lob to make guarantee you get it in there. Um, but her second serve is only something like six kilometres slower than her first serve. Mm, amazing. And only mm. 18. You know, this is a girl born in 2003. <laughs> that Jesus to me seems like Jesus yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> now, Darren, what, what will it mean if, uh, well, it's the Bulldogs and Melbourne. Two great teams, two teams that haven't had much success in the last 50 or so years, although the Bulldogs won in uh, 2016. Mm. I remember um, being in Italy when they won, Darren, in 2016. I was, wow. I, was on, I was renting this place on a balcony and it had a balcony overlooking the Mediterranean and I got up really early and I was listening on my mobile phone to the 3AW coverage and it was pitch black when it started. And by nine o'clock when they won, which was five o'clock in the afternoon, here the sun had come up and it was a glorious summer's day. And um, I went down to the town area and I was talking to a lady who I knew there and I said, do you, you don't realise because you're on this side of the world, but where I come from, something humongous has just happened. <laughs> a football club has won a premiership and it's been 60 years since they've done that. Mm. Well, I'll tell you what, the Bulldogs scare me a bit because uh, their midfield is very strong. I think we will win. I think things will pull us over the line. I'm thrilled that Barass, Ron Barassi, was, I watched him on the news the other night singing the grand old flag and it was wonderful to see and they deserve it. Their time has come. I hope it happens. Now, on that note, can I just divert you for one second before we close? I've been involved in a huge shit fight in the last couple of weeks Um involving the federal government and the Labor Party. Uh, they snuck through the Senate a piece of legislation that tries to destroy minor parties like the Justice Party and others. And the legislation says that minor parties must now have 1,500 paid-up accredited members when until this week it was 500. The Australian Electoral Commission told me this week, I must have those 1,500 by December 2. In the middle of COVID, all people care about is not politics. They care about their, their life, their health, their job, their money, their rent, their mortgage, all those things. And so we're, small parties are going to fight for this. I actually put out a press release saying this is an act of, of political bastardry. Labor and Liberals want to wipe out all minor parties and get rid of crossbenchers. And we're going to fight it. I think we can get the numbers, but it is hard. It will be hard. And uh, it is so cynical. I shouldn't be surprised, Tony, because I got elected for six years. And then because of the double dissolution, Labor and Liberal got together. It wasn't a constitutional issue, it was a Senate vote. Labor and Liberals got together and cut my six-year term to three years and voted me out. Um, and it's so cynical, and I shouldn't be surprised by this, but Richard Dunatale, who was then the leader of the Greens, voted with me. We, we voted against the, the motion. And Dilatali voted with a crossbench and 
very strong about defending minor parties. Unfortunately, he didn't understand or didn't hear that I'd heard before he voted with me to oppose this motion. I heard him say to Matthias Corman, do you have the numbers? Can I vote with Hinch? Mm. So and that's he was only politics. prepared to vote with you uh, as long as if, he, if, knew. If he knew. I'd, if he knew I'd yeah. lose. Yeah. Now, when you say you're going to fight it, um, you know, when the Liberal, when the Coalition and Labor join together, you can't win that fight. They're going no, to you use can't, their numbers to... No, but if I can get 1,500 legitimate members, a few more hundred new ones, we have about 1,300 members now. But we the, the sad, you know, the annoying thing about this, Tony, is that if you're a member of Parliament, you don't need 1,500 members. Cory Bernardi started the Conservative Party as a senator with probably five members. Um, Clive Palmer has bought Craig Kelly because as a member of Parliament, he doesn't need to prove he has 1,500 members. He could have 10. That's the, that's, that's the cynical thing here. That's the way it works, and that's why we have to fight it. So why... I mean, I know why they're doing it, but what are they saying to justify it? Nothing. They're just saying this is the way it should be. They, they want to take, like, Liberal Democrats, whom Lionhelm got elected admittedly uh, as number one as a Liberal Democrat when some Liberals thought he was a Liberal. They're trying to change party names as well. So if you're a Liberal Democrat, you can't be a Liberal Democrat. You must be a Democrat. If you're a... You know, the Liberal Country Party, we have to become the Liberal Party or the Country Party. But what if you're just a one-person candidate, you know, like an independent oh, an independent. Candidate. Well, you, you can still do that, but but independent candidates have virtually no chance of getting, getting elected. But you don't have really. to have 1,500 people Oh, no, up. no. As an independent, you, you can stand, but, but you've got Buckley's chance of getting elected. But if you want to be registered as a federal party with the AEC and have your logo on the voting card next year... You must have 1,500 electoral voters registered and confirmed by the AEC. And at the moment, the Justice Party has 1,300. Yeah. So you need another 200 to yeah. uh, at least yeah. fulfil what they... I, I don't use the podcast as a huge... Well, I don't short, know. Uh, no, no, well, I, 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 we're bringing this to people's attention, so I, I don't see any problem with... Uh, you know, people need to know, because I didn't know this. Um, mm. Well, and, uh, we snuck in. I, I didn't know. I thought it meant that new parties had their 1,500. I mean, we have five... We, we had to have 500 legitimate members, which is fair, and four times in the last three years, the Justice Party has wasted time and money, which we don't have, verifying our membership to the AEC. And we did it as recently as November last year. And now I'm being challenged again to do it again. So my staff has to phone 1,500 people which takes ages and money, which we don't have, to, um, to do. And it's just, it's not right. It's just two major parties being bloody bullies. I've, I've, on, on a press release, I said it was an act of public and political bastardry, and I believe it is. Well, I mean, in the end, the, the vote that counts is what happens on election day. Um, and therefore, I, I think it's, it, the number of, of, of members is irrelevant, whether you have 500 or two. Uh, you're not going to get in if people don't want to vote for you. Well, that is true, but, but the, the AEC insists before you can get on, on get your... I mean, we had our, our button denied the last time, which worked in our favour because it left a gap above our name and made it look more attractive, but my Hinch Justice Party button was... was 
was denied by the AEC before the election on the grounds it didn't reach this, the centimetre argument. Mm. Well, well the, the minor things you fight when you're a political leader, Sunshine. <laughs> That's right. It's all well, new to me. Um, well, there, there you go, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, anyway, before we finish, let's go back to gardening, all right? One quick second. In your on your balcony or in your in your backyard, grow things. The, the the joy about seeing I planted some celery just from roots I chopped off from a Woolies bunch, and they're growing. It's a great feeling. In lockdown, it's 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 quite entertaining and exciting. Well, one more thing. My daughter went overseas on her uh, honeymoon, fell in love with sunflowers all over Europe. Uh, they came back, started growing sunflowers. Last year, she gave me a big jar with all sorts of all sunflower seeds. I've put them everywhere. So this year, I'm going to enjoy watching these yellow, beautiful, round things growing all over the place. That is wonderful. I'll tell you why. When I owned a farm at Mount Macedon, watching the daffodils, the wild daffodils grow in all your paddocks was magic. Mr. Hinch, are we getting old or...? <laughs> no, we're getting soft. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, thank you very much for your time and we'll chat again next week. We shall indeed, mate. Bye-bye.